0: The English Eccentric by E. O. Higgins. In 1765, a distinguished French scholar by the name of Pierre Jean Grossly visited England for the first time and was struck by the level of eccentricity he observed in the natives. Writing home on the subject, he noted that this unusual behaviour he had observed could be attributed to a mixture of fogs, beef, and beer aggravated by the tedium of the English Sunday. The writer, man of letters and Whig politician, Horace Walpole, once stated, The most remarkable thing I have observed since I came abroad is that there is no people so obviously mad as the English. And he was a man who would generally attend the breakfast table with his fat and favourite little dog and, you know, preferred squirrel. Hmm. The eccentrics we'll meet in this podcast series are often people with corkscrew minds, peculiar obsessions, and largely incomprehensible outlooks. They straddle both sexes and all social classes. Some of their stories are famous, but most are unjustifiably obscure. But hopefully, what they all are is worth a listen. caribou 1791 to 1864 the people's Princess the small Gloucestershire hamlet of almondsbury came to national attention in April 1817 when early one morning a local tradesman met a clearly disorientated woman hobbling aimlessly about the village, wearing tattered, though exotic-looking clothing, including an outsized black turban. She surprised him by responding in an anxious tone and in an entirely incomprehensible language. Following the cobbler's intervention, the mysterious woman was taken to Mr. Hill, the village's overseer of the poor, who, also not quite sure what to do with her, Julie placed her in the hands of the local magistrate, Samuel Worrell. In his seminal work on the characters and strange events of Devonshire, Devonshire Characters and Strange Events, 1908, the author Sabine Baring Gould writes Mr. Worrell ordered that she should be brought to his residence, Knoll Park, and presently the overseer returned with a slim damsel. Dressed poorly, but quaintly, with a sort of turban about her head. Not precisely beautiful, but with very intelligent speaking eyes. Following a lengthy interview, Worrell ascertained that the woman referred to herself as Caribou. And, upon taking her on an apparent fact-finding mission to his local pub, was surprised when she spotted an etching of a pineapple adorning a wall, an extremely rare fruit in Provincial England at the time, and, clearly recognising it, referred to it excitedly as nanus. Back at the Magistrates' house in Knoll Park, Caribou turned down the offer of a bed, an object she seemed to treat with suspicion, and elected instead to sleep on the floor. The exotic nature of his mysterious guest clearly didn't hold much sway with Samuel Worrell, however. For he promptly declared the woman a beggar and had her committed to St Peter's Hospital for vagrants in Bristol, where she was to be tried for destitution. Evidently, he was a hard man, and the whole pineapple recognition thing had singularly failed to impress. According to Baring Gould, And there she remained until the ensuing Monday three days later, refusing food of every description. On that day, Mrs. Worrell visited her at the hospital. The friendless situation of the foreign lady had in the interim become public, and several gentlemen had called upon her, bringing with them foreigners of their own acquaintance in the hope of discovering who she was. Caribou expressed lively delight at seeing Mrs. Worrell again, and that lady, deeply touched, removed her from the hospital to the office of Mr. Worrell in Bristol, where she remained for 10 days under the care of the housekeeper. Following her imprisonment, Mr. Worrell was approached by a Portuguese sailor named Manuel Anesio, who explained that he was fluent in many foreign languages and offered his translation services. He was immediately engaged and after a succession of lengthy interviews with the mysterious woman, he said that having travelled extensively in the Far East and in the Dutch East Indies, he was able to recognise the woman's language as a mix of native tongues from Sumatra. Finally, he returned to Worrell with a most singular tale. According to Inesio, the woman was in fact Princess Caribou, from the island of Javasu in the Indian Ocean. Her father had been recently killed in a war between the Boogus and the Mandins Malays. Whilst walking in her garden at Javasu, attended by three semen maids, she was seized by pirates, commanded by a man named Chiming bound hand and foot, her mouth covered, and carried off. In the struggle, she had wounded two of Cheeming's men with her Chris dagger, one of whom had later died. After 11 days, she was sold to the captain of a brig called the Boo. A month later, she had arrived at a port, presumably Batavia, remained there for two days, and then started for England, which she had reached in 11 weeks. In consequence of ill-usage by the crew, she had jumped overboard in what was assumed to be the Bristol Channel, swimming to freedom. At the time of her kidnap, she had been wearing a silk dress embroidered with spun gold. But she was induced to exchange this for food and the rags she was discovered in with a woman in a cottage near Bristol Harbour. News that the woman was royalty obviously inspired Worrell to have a bit of a rethink. He immediately had her released from the hospital and took her back to his own home. For the next two and a half months, Worrell paraded Princess Caribou around in front of his high society friends, to whom she became quickly in vogue. She also charmed many of the locals with her strange behavior, which included being extremely proficient with a bow and arrow, calling out to her god, Al-a-tala, Al-a-tala! And exciting much attention from locals by swimming naked in the village lake. Good, look at that. The Worrells even paid for her to have some exotic clothing made to her own specification, and as a consequence, local artists lined up to paint her portrait. Finally, Caribou's credentials were confirmed following a thorough examination by a Dr. Wilkinson. He used Edmund Fry's Pantographia (1799), a reference book of writing systems of the known world, to authenticate her language. He also insisted that the scars that he had discovered on the back of the princess's head were undoubtedly the work of oriental surgeons. Wilkinson publicly declared, Nothing has yet transpired to authorize the slightest suspicion of caribou. Nor has such ever been entertained, except by those whose souls feel not the spirit of benevolence, and wish to convert into ridicule that amiable disposition in others. After his long interview, Wilkinson resolved to go to London to consult the Foreign Office, and to obtain funds for the present relief of the Princess and her restoration to her native land. With Caribou's story now substantiated, the fantastic tale of the kidnapped princess quickly made its way to the pages of national newspapers, many of which illustrated the tale by reproducing some of the exotic princess's portraits. Unfortunately, however, one of the people that chanced upon Caribou's picture was a Bristol boarding house owner by the name of Mrs. Neal, who seemed to recognise the portrait's subject, but knew her, by the rather more prosaic name, of Mary Wilcox. According to Neil, Wilcox was a cobbler's daughter from Witheridge in Devon, and she had provided her with lodgings in Bristol the previous year. Arriving at Knoll Park House, Mrs. Neal confronted Princess Caribou, who surprised everyone by immediately responding to her in English. Wilcox's three months as the Princess had come to an end, and she pleaded to the Worrels that she had only worn the turban and spoken in a made-up language in order to make herself more interesting. She had, in fact, invented the character of Princess Caribou, along with her indecipherable language, to entertain the children at Mrs. Neal's guesthouse. They had liked it so much, that, finding herself having fallen upon hard times, she decided to apply her inventiveness to avoid being swept up like any other vagrant. She had not really intended her extraordinary deception of the Worrels and the good people of Almondsbury. And soon enough, Upon inspection of a few maps, it quickly transpired that there was no Java after all. With almost indecent haste, Dr Wilkinson's authentication of Caribou's language was rubbished. When academics from Oxford University, who had been given the opportunity to examine some of her jottings, described her native script as a nonsense, humbug language. When asked about the odd scars on her head that Wilkinson had previously attributed to Oriental surgery, Wilcox stated that they were actually the result of a wet cupping operation she had been forced to have whilst an inmate in a London poorhouse, intended to relieve pressure on her overheated brain. Born in Witheridge in 1791, about 65 miles from Almondsbury, Wilcox said that she had had an unhappy childhood and claimed that her father had thought her odd. Consequently, she had left home in her teens and headed to London. After losing her job as a nursemaid in Clapham, Wilcox had herself admitted to an establishment named the Magdalen Hospital for Penitent Prostitutes. Eventually being thrown out when it was discovered that she had actually never been a prostitute. After this, she had taken to the streets, before heading back to her native west country. The Worrells bore much mockery for their credulity in believing the Caribou story, but had also become attached to Wilcox during her stay with them. Rather than turning her back onto the streets, they instead paid for her to travel to the United States. In the USA, Wilcox briefly resurrected her caribou role, appearing as the princess on the stage of the Washington Hall Theatre in Philadelphia, to a rather lukewarm reception. Returning to England in 1824, she reprised the role of caribou once again, this time exhibiting herself in New Bond Street in London. Sadly, Even in her native country, the success she had enjoyed with the character of the princess in Almondsbury was never to repeat itself, and she was soon forced to stop performing. Wilcox ended her days in less than exotic circumstances, living back in her native west country, farming leeches, and then selling them to the Bristol Infirmary Hospital. To this day, one mystery remains regarding Manuel Anesio, the Portuguese sailor who had translated her story. It remains a puzzle how he could have discerned a made-up language. There seems to be no evidence that he and Wilcox knew each other, or that there was any kind of collaboration between them. It has been speculated that Anesio was some manner of confidence man who had just fleshed out the story just to take advantage of her fame. Or, potentially, that he was just some bloke taking the piss. Next on the English eccentric. Here comes the Eggman.